The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. Good riddance, September. After the worst month of the year for stocks, what happens to your money now? Big question, the investment committee now debating the road ahead. Joining me for the hour today, everybody here at Post 9 at the New York Stock Exchange, Joe Terranova, Brenda Vangelo, Jason Snipe, Steve Weiss. Let's check the markets, see what we're doing here. Uh, a rainy day, uh, both outside and for the most part inside. Dow's down 55. S&P's hanging on. NASDAQ's a good one today. 455 is the yield on the 10-year note. Uh, Joe, worst month of the year. Everybody knows that by now, I suppose. Um, the question really is, what happens now? You know, Wells Fargo's Chris Harvey, floor of S&P at 4,200. How do you see things as we close what was a pretty dismal month? So as we approach the end of the month, you had some oversold conditions, in particular for bonds and overbought conditions for crude oil. And that's been worked off over the last couple of days. So that's provided some relief for equities. I think now it is all about earnings, what the earnings will look like as they report here in the coming uh, weeks. I believe that earnings will be strong. I still think that we will see the positive effect in this quarter of a strong consumer. Resiliency will prevail. I believe we will deteriorate in those earnings as we move forward into 2024. But the setup for the remainder of the year, if you have strong earnings, I believe is a positive one. And I still think the leadership, which has been in mega caps, will ultimately be where money managers not want to turn, but have to turn if they want to keep pace with a market that restores the prevailing trend of 2023. I don't see them turning anywhere else, Scott. They're not going to turn to healthcare, financials, energy, industrials to capture the return. They're going to have to own the mega caps. All right, Brenda, it's good to see you uh, here on, uh, on this coast <laughs> for a change. So welcome. Um, yields, earnings two most important things undoubtedly for what happens next, correct? I agree with Joe that earnings are going to be really important, and I think hopefully it'll bring a return back to the fundamentals and looking what's happening in the, the world of corporate earnings, which I think, I agree with Joe, I think they're going to be strong. And this, as a reminder, you know, this is going to be the first quarter of earnings growth that's being projected after several quarters of an earnings decline yeah, for the S&P. As you talk, let's, yep. let's just show what the earnings growth estimates are, um, because you're right. Yeah. Uh, but continue, you'll see, you know, growing by a smidge, um, after these last quarters of declines. So I think that's certainly an important factor. Also, we have energy, uh, which should be having a better, much better earnings quarter uh, this quarter, uh, following the rise in prices that we've seen. But I think from a bigger picture perspective, we're really looking at an environment where sentiment changed materially from the beginning of the year until June, July timeframe, where I think things got too 
positive. Uh, but we've had this come back to reality check a little bit with an acknowledgement that the economy is still pretty strong. The Fed is likely going to stay higher for longer. But at the, at the heart of it, I think, is that corporate earnings are still going to be pretty good. Uh, so I agree with Joe that we might see some softening next year, especially if energy prices stay where they are and a lot of confusion over uh, inflation and what that means if we start to see the energy flow through into the core inflation components. Uh, but outside of that, I think earnings are going to be pretty decent. And okay. so that hopefully that will be a catalyst here right. to get things moving in the right Jason direction. Jason Snipes, so, yep. you know, I read the other day, to our to our viewers, what Bespoke was talking about, yep. you know, September to forget for the last four years or so, but then the fourth quarter, good, right. uh, over that same period of time. Now, I don't know if history is going to repeat itself, rhyme, or if things are different now because the yield question has brought a whole new variable into the conversation, and you know, earnings to the points that have already been made are suggested to go higher starting now. Yeah, you better live up to the hype. Right. No, absolutely. And, I, you know, I, I agree with a lot of what Joe and, and Brenda already said in terms of earnings expectations. And hopefully that that'll ring true and, and, and come to fruition. But I, I'll turn to some of the inflation data that we got this this morning. PCE core deflator was down. Income was relatively in line and spending also has come down. So these are positive uh, catalyst, I think, for the market. Also, we got a surprise in Eurozone, right? Eurozone deflation, you know, so I think that that also has been a positive, and I think that's part of what we've seen in these last two days, a little bit of a bump, but I do think earnings will ring true. We'll see in the next two weeks. It's a bit of a squirrely market today, too, Weiss, right? Like, yeah. it's been recently a little volatile. Dow was up a bunch. Now it's in negative territory. NASDAQ's off of its highs of the day. I guess, you know, look, yields are going to be a, a big tell. Yields have backed up over the last many weeks. It's one reason why the S&P 500 over the month is down 4.5%, and the NASDAQ is one of the worst, down 55 because, you know, these growth stocks haven't worked all that well as yields have, have ticked higher. I want you to listen to what Rick Reeder of BlackRock uh, told me yesterday out at Delivering Alpha about where he thinks rates might be heading. Listen. I still think you can back up a bit more. Are we going to see five? I don't know. But I still think you can get a little bit of backup. And then, you know, we're going to get into next year. We're going to be a different, I think, a different paradigm. You think we're close to peaking? I think so. But, you know, you have to buy into the fact that this Fed wants to bolt down that inflation is going to be durably softer over time. So could they hike another time or more? They could. My sense is they should be done. But, uh, but you know, listen, could you back up a little bit more? I think you could. So now... Look, he, he's head, aside from being their fixed in income guru, he's also head of their global allocation team. So he has his broad view of the markets at large, and he makes the suggestion that stocks can, can do well, even in an environment of, of rising rates. And that's a similar case, by the way, that you've made multiple times over the last several years on this program. Right. Rates and stocks can go up together, as they've done throughout history. Mm -hmm. Up to a certain point. So, you know, so I was on the phone just came before we came on the show with Dave Tepper, great investor, great credit investor, great equity investor. He's not generally more eloquent than I am. As a matter of fact, you know, I'm much more articulate than him. But he pointed perfectly. He said, this is back to the future with rates. QE is done. So where, where I have an issue with that is that, yes, rates can go up while stocks go up, but then you hit that level, and you hit the level where we are now. And by the way, that's restrictive economic policy, restrictive monetary policy. So I don't believe that the market's going to do well in the back half. I'm not looking at a disaster, but let's look at it. You've got a multiple that's close to 19 times. 
the market shouldn't be there 19 times when rates are where they are. Multiples down from where it was, isn't it? And it's good. doesn't mean it's, it's stopping here. I think the multiple goes lower. So you're so, negative between now and the end of the year, despite I'm cautious. You know, what I told I'm cautious. you, you know, the, the stats are the stats, whether that means anything, it doesn't get it you It doesn't anything. mean anything because... Oh, of course. Because guess what? Every time is different. So if it were that easy, if all you had to say, hey, the fourth quarter is going to be a good quarter, October is going to be strong, everybody would be making a fortune. The markets would always go up. It's just not that easy. You have, you have all the pundits coming out saying, see, I told you so, September's a weak month. Well, guess what? The average decline in September is 1.3%. As you pointed out, the decline this month was 4%. So it's not like it was. You can't predict it. So here's what I'd say. I do like mega cap. I like some better than others. I love Microsoft because of the AI, what's going to do with their products. I love Meta because 16 times 24 earnings. But... I'm not a big fan of the other and the valuation over on the markets. So I don't see a disaster because you don't have those issues in, mon- in, in the banking system that we had okay. in 08. But also, here's where I may be wrong, and I think where I've been a little wrong with the market in the beginning of the year. You've had free money for 15 years. Think about that, okay? So for your average investor, it was, let's say it was 25 or she was 25 15 years ago, had no money in the market. All they've known is it's free money. So they don't know how to adjust. The market doesn't know how to adjust to these stay high rates, which are going to be higher, like Ackman says, and you'll probably get there later in the show, higher for longer, like Jay Powell said. So what do you do with that? So that influences what you do. We're starting to see that come out in the consumer with CarMax, with others. So I don't take it as you take it as, as a positive in the data where consumer spending slowing, I take it as a negative because it's just starting. You don't see it in one month or two months. You see it in a trend. First and foremost, I, I appreciate you revealing your off-the-record comments with Tepper on the air. I'm sure he does as well. Thank you for he that. He actually said I could say that. Thank you. Okay. He right. said it. You guys can work that out later. Yeah. yeah. Um, you are banking on this big push into the end of the year because of a Chase 4 performance. So what about what Weiss says? It makes good sense that a lot of others share that, he, that view. He does, and I, I think you know me well enough to know not to have the degree of hubris to come on air and... You mean that Weiss I, does? I, no. <laughs> well, some of it's deserved, actually. Come on. Yeah. And, not, <laughs> not, and not speak towards my positioning without mentioning what I'm trying to do is, is ultimately just manage the risk in the portfolio. Portfolio. And what I see is, you know, the other day on Closing Bell, and I'm going to apologize to who said it, but it was a phenomenal comment. They said to you, there's a risk in not taking any risk. And that's that such, was a, Lauren Goodwin. such a fantastic statement. It really is true. And if you think about as we approach towards the end of the year, I look at my portfolio and I say to myself, okay, I'm underperforming this year because I have an equal weighted strategy. I made the same mistake everyone made at the beginning of the year where, Steve, you know what? Consensus at the beginning of the year, no one expected what has unfolded so far year to date. So that somewhat troubles me as I look into Q4 because everyone's kind of saying, well, here comes the bounce because October you always get the bounce. But still, you have to manage the risk. And I look at the portfolio and I say to myself, okay, where are the holes in the portfolio? And the holes in the portfolio are if mega caps regain that leadership performance once again, then I am going to struggle through the end of Q4. I don't want to accept that risk. That's why I've positioned in that direction by picking up some cues. Could I be wrong? Yes, I could be wrong. But again, it's about managing the risk. But my point is that mega caps will likely lead, 
but they could be flat. They could be down slightly. They're I don't think they lead with major performance with above trend performance, even with trend performance. Even if they're uh, flat, even flat, if they're flat in some they extent, yes. in some extent is is up enough. Yes, absolutely you know what I'm correct. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. Absolutely, and, that, and that's a great point because let's take away this premise, which I think a lot of people in July had, that here comes the January of 2022 highs. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's where, in fact, we're going. Look where we are today. We're at 4310 for the S&P 500. So a moderate bounce of, you know, 2% or 3% doesn't really get you very far. So just basically the mega caps maintaining uh, an unchanged level ultimately is not going to be so bad for your positioning. The best way to look at it, the most succinctly succinct way to look at it, is that the average multiple on the market is 14 to 15. We're close to 19. Why should the market be at 19 when the average multiple is based upon average monetary policy, not restrictive and not loose? Well, so we've got to go multiple, back to that multiple. But the multiple has been skewed by the performance and the multiple expansion from the Magnificent Seven. Yep. The equal weight multiple is not close to 19 mm-hmm. because of the yeah, dramatic underperformance of, of those stocks. So let's be careful on how we that's parse, a very fair point. parse the data. Yep. What about this idea, Brent, of, of mega caps? Well, I think the other thing we have to consider with mega caps is that they are they benefit in some ways from the current industry environment. They're earning a lot on cash. <laughs> they have a ton of cash sitting in the bank where it was earning nothing uh, for the last decade. And now they're able to keep up with inflation just on that cash balance. And also, if they're looking to grow their businesses in some areas like AI, not a bad time to think about being acquisitive and putting some of that cash to work and maybe being able to, to make some acquisitions at really low valuations, especially if you look in small cap companies and even private companies uh, where valuation has declined. So I don't think we can say this is a terrible environment for everybody. Um, uh, and I do think, at, you know, to your point, if you look beyond those mega cap seven stocks, valuation is pretty reasonable. And a lot of areas of the market have not participated at all, really, in this market recovery that we've seen this year. Yeah, you know, the other problem, Jason, for, you know, uh, Joe's point of view that, you know, that we're going to get this flood of money coming in because of a chase for performance right. is there's still too much of an alternative that exists without the risk that some right. might feel they're taking in the stock market, you right. know, 5% money markets. Yep. are still going to be attractive enough for some. Yep. You know, what the certain parts of the yield curve, and treasuries, are still enough of a better place to be for some yep. than going into equities, equities, excuse me, if you think that it's going to be more volatile between now and the end of the year. So you still have that competition. Absolutely. And there's no doubt about it. The optionality that exists in the market wasn't something that existed a few years ago, right? So yes, a three-month treasury paying at 5.5%, you know, um, money markets paying above 5%. So I, I, I do believe that exists in the short run. But however, when, you, when you're thinking about equities for the long term, and obviously there's a lot of long-term investors that are invested in the market, I think a lot of folks are looking at this as an opportunity. Some of the pullback that we've seen, if you were offsides early part of the year, you missed the run-up. We've seen a little bit of pullback. This might be an opportunity to get in. And I agree a lot with what Brenda already just said. A lot of these mega cap tech names do not need to rely on the debt market to grow. They have a ton of free cash flow, strong balance sheets. I think this is these are the opportunities where people could take advantage of some of the, some of the price drawdown that we see in these names. So we've spent many a day on this program talking about Nike <laughs> and most of it, you know, the misery of what's happened with the stock. You know, these losing streaks down 11 straight days earlier. I think this week we're talking about eight straight down days. Well, now it's trying for its best day of the year. There it is. 
Um, it's up 6% right now. Not the best levels of, of even the morning, but off of these earnings, it's our chart of the day. Stephanie Link joins us now on the phone because, Steph, you know, you've been in the center of many of these conversations that we've had over Nike, and you've said, stay the course, stay the course. China's going to get better. It's still Nike, right? Um, yeah. And here you are, rewarded some respects. Now, the stock has obviously had a tough go of it, but you're getting some of it back today. Yeah, I, look, there were very low expectations headed into the print, as you mentioned, down 20% year to date. Um, and the earnings were, were solid, right? It, they, they beat on the, on the bottom line, mainly because of better SGNA. But if you look and you dig deep into the revenues, Nike brands rose 2.5%, and average selling prices increased in all geographic regions. Jordan brand up double digits. And as you mentioned, China up 12% constant currency. That's the second quarter of double-digit growth for China on a constant currency basis. They're gaining market share in China, and China consumer wants to spend. And I've been talking about that for a really long time. I was wrong for a really long time, but I do think the consumer in China is certainly poised to continue to spend. And you had global same-store sales up 12% on a constant currency basis as well. But the key number, Scott, you, you and I have talked about this a lot, is the EBIT margins. They actually beat by 180 basis points. And the reason that's important is because they're guiding for upper teens in the next couple of years. They just put up 12.5%. So I have a little more confidence they can get to that upper teens. That means they can do 650 in earnings power up from 380 this year. So, you know, it's not cheap 24 times, but it's below its 10-year average at 28 times. So I'm definitely going to stay the course. And if it gives back a little bit more, that gives me more of a run opportunity to continue to buy this because it is still down year to date. To your point, too, about China, John Donahoe, CEO, said, I, I think he's been there a couple times in the last, I don't know, four to six weeks, I think he said, roughly. Um, and he feels good about what he saw and what he heard. And as you've made the case that, you know, China, as you just said, is going to come back. Yeah, I mean, I think you're seeing it. You're seeing China come back in a couple of places, right? In cosmetics, luxury, Macau, and now uh, apparel and footwear. So I think you're going to continue to see it. You know, you had a lot of pent up demand. So I think you're going to that, that's going to be the one bright spot in China. You don't want to own China as a whole, but that one piece is certainly where I have a lot of conviction. Yeah, Steph, I appreciate you calling in. I uh, wanted Scott. to hear from you today, uh, given our conversations recently about Nike, which is up six percent. Joe, I, I turn to you because we've had many too. Mm -hmm. um, you have it in the Joe T. We do. I feel like now, and I know there's only so much you can say uh, because it's not rebalanced time yet, but I feel like you've, you've uh, emotionally and psychologically had one foot out the door on this thing. Now, does this change the way you're feeling about it given what they delivered, what the stock's doing, and what Donahoe himself said? If you're purely looking at the factor of momentum, which is an integral consideration for what will be done on October 31st, what has happened with this bounce with Nike is it's put itself in a position to where I would say it's now a yellow light. So that would assume that previously it was a red light based on where it was. Um, it's important that Nike maintains the price gains that we have had since yesterday afternoon. And if it's able to accelerate from there, then at the end of the month, we'll take a look at Nike and decide what to do with it. Yeah. Weiss, I mean, you heard Cities Jane Frazier with Sarah out uh, at Pebble. Uh, resilient consumer, but a softer one. Since we're you know, broadening it out to the consumer's gotten us here, mm -hmm. the consumer needs to keep us here. Right? I yeah. mean, in terms of where we got into in this market, in large respects, the economy too? 
Yeah, and, and I think that's the issue. So there's a tendency in the market to say, hey, look at the data today. Everything's okay, mm -hmm. but that's not what you have to do. On data that comes out, you got to look at three months, a three-month trend, right? You should have a job to do that with a lot of it. But you've also got to say, okay, what is, the, what is the direction? And the direction for the consumer just isn't good. We've heard it time and time again that they've depleted their COVID savings. They've drank through that fire hose of demand. Now that's done. Now where are you going? So in addition to the payback of student loans, et cetera, there's a lot of pressure on the consumer. There's pressure from the gas tank. There's pressure from leave, living with this higher inflation, which even though it's come down, it's still pretty high. So the consumer is tapped out and going lower. So Jane Frazier's got a great look into it, but that's a moment in time. I'm looking forward. So in terms of Nike, uh, it was better than expected. The setup for the quarter, the setup for the performance day was just classic. We saw it in UNH, which I own, which is why I bought more when it just got to the bottom right before earnings, because it was never going to be that bad. But I just say, look, look going forward. I think Nike's okay. Is Nike on, a gift under 100 bucks? I don't at think this it's point? A, It depends. If your time frame is five years, absolute gift. Okay, absolutely. If your timeline timeline is two to three years, it's also a gift, not as great a gift. So I have no problem buying Nike. Year. I'm not going to buy in the spike today. It's something I've been watching. It's a great company. China, China can go either way. We just don't know. Their economy is not really recovering. She is just killing the economy. You just need to get a better steward there, a better policy. But overall, I think it's okay here. That, that's a very strong assessment of the consumer. I think there's something important to understand that applies to retail. The synergy between the strength of the Chinese consumer and the U.S. consumer, it really hasn't been present. And now I think you have to ask yourself the question, if Stephanie is correct and the Chinese consumer actually now begins to recover and is contributing, does the U.S. consumer weaken at that point? You need to have at some point the Chinese consumer and the U.S. consumer both in a strong condition. You haven't had that. And I think looking forward, when you're trying to understand where you go with retail, understand that just because Chinese uh, consumption might increase on the part of the consumer doesn't necessarily protract something that's favorable for retail because the U.S. consumer is actually going in the opposite direction. I'm looking at names, Brent, like, you know, I just pulled up EL, Estee Lauder, right? If, if, if we think the consumer in China is about to turn a corner, if you believe, you know, Donahoe's got good visibility over there, been over there a couple times, as we said, what he saw, um, stock's up two and a third percent. I mean, there are other names that are, are super reliant on the Chinese consumer getting out and spending, not only in, uh, you know, in uh, the mainland, but certainly around the world. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and I think you know, the Chinese consumer also has saved significantly during the pandemic years, more so than U.S. consumers. So there is a lot of uh, cash sitting on the sidelines waiting to potentially be spent, which could be pretty powerful, especially for some of these companies where stocks are down and out. But I agree with Joe that the U.S. consumer in some ways has actually benefited from what's been going on in China in that China has basically been exporting deflation of goods. So goods prices have come down because the economy there hasn't been as strong. So if, if that reverses um, and, you know, we do see inflation leveling out for goods or deflation leveling out for goods and we see prices stabilize and potentially go up. Meanwhile, we have energy prices rising globally. That's not a good thing for the global consumer. So I do think there are still some risks to that consumer story from a global perspective, but more because of what's happening on the energy side. Makes you want to buy commodities. 
Uh, well, Weiss has a commodity-related sale. Uh, we're not going to do it yet. We'll, we'll do that ahead, though, uh, because Weiss is selling a name in his portfolio. You guys need to hear about it. We'll do that a little bit later. Uh, in the meantime, coming up, delivering Alphabet. Bill Ackman versus Brad Gerstner on Google's role in AI. Is it the stock to own right now or not? We'll talk about who's getting it right. The debate's next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit ODFL.com to learn more. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back. Among the topics discussed and debated at yesterday's CNBC Delivering Alpha Conference, Alphabet and its role in AI. Both Brad Gerstner and Bill Ackman weighing in with slightly differing views. Listen. ChatGPT was launched, incredible game-changing kind of product, and Google really fumbled their offering. And so people said, oh my God, Google's way behind on AI, and the stock sold off to, you know, 15 times earnings. Uh, for one of the greatest businesses in the world. They took a much more cautious launch approach, and I think, and then kind of fumbled an early demonstration, made people think they were behind in Microsoft and ChatGPT would sort of, if you will, OpenAI would eat their lunch, uh, and, and it led to a very mispriced uh, stock. And then we actually, we've bought more in the 120s. Uh, it's our second largest investment. Let's say that Google with Bard is just as good as ChatGPT. So then the question is, will Bard have the same economics of Google search? And what I'm arguing is, even if they're competitive, even if Bard is the best, they're not going to have the same monopoly profits in the age of AI as they had with search. All right. Ackman and Gerstner weighing in on Alphabet. Now, Jason, for context, for those who may not remember, Gerstner came on our program, said AI, uh, Alphabet missed the boat, sold the stock. Right. said yesterday during our conversation at Delivering Alpha that he, in the dislocation of the stock after that, had bought a little bit back. But the point was clear. He thinks they fumbled the ball. Yeah. Ackman says, well, they fumbled the ball, but I picked it up because I thought it was, it was worth grabbing at that moment. Right. Who's right? Who is right on this stock? Yeah. So, I mean, it, and it clearly is expressed in the price action that we've seen year to date. I mean, Google's up 49%. Uh, Microsoft is only up 32%, but it's been a great year, right? Um, but what I would say is I, I agree with Ackman and the fact that uh, the, the rollout for Baird clearly was fumbled. And I think that that created some, some disconnection to the stock, no doubt about it. But what I would say about Microsoft, and, and I think the reason why I agree with Gershner here and, and, and what what AI can do for their product and their, their suite of services. I think in terms of what they offer the consumer, 
the productivity and, and the AI themes, I think, play out a little bit stronger with Microsoft than it does with Google. And I think that's why I prefer Google as an AI theme stock over, I, I'm sorry, Microsoft over, over a Google here. But, but they're both great companies. They both have obviously really strong consumer bases that I think will benefit from all the trends. But Microsoft would be my play here. Okay. You know, going forward. Weiss, what about you? So that's the sort of Gerstner point of view that, right. the, you know, that if not a fatal mistake by Alphabet, they just ceded too much ground to Microsoft to be able to recover enough to take that leadership role as this entire movement continues to, to, to move forward. I side with Bill on this. They're both great investors. It's important to know where they come from, their perspectives investors. Brad, phenomenal venture investor, phenomenal early stage growth. So Brad, one of his largest positions, I'm guessing is probably still no, Snowflake, which isn't making any money and selling at 150 times next year. Bill, Bill's more eclectic. Bill can own, as he did, Chipotle, when the multiple on that stock was 50 times, made a fortune on it. But here's why I don't think it's important to well, figure I mean, out. To be clear, too, I mean, Gerstner is not just an early stage No, 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 investor. no, I mean, no. NVIDIA is one of his biggest plays, Microsoft, right. et cetera. I mean, he's and on and he was a right, major right. shareholder of United. Yeah. But I'm just saying in terms of their perspective right now, one lives in the Valley, one lives in New York. So it just influences what you do. That aside, I don't think you have to declare who's going to be the winner. When I take a look at what Google's got, they may have botched the launch, not may, they did, and they let Microsoft get out early. Hey, even Ackman said that. Right, and I agree with you. To me, Microsoft is the premier, over and above NVIDIA, AI play because of what it does for their products. But also, if you take a look at Google. So will Bard make search easier? Will you be less dependent or other chat GBT plays make you less dependent on search at Google, possibly, but we don't know what they're going to do. Keep in mind, AI is really more of a dream than a fully fleshed out mature business, number one. Number two, if you take a look at Google's cloud business, the need for cloud is going to grow exponentially as the computing power picks up, as the data picks up, as you incorporate AI into it. So they're not going to be a loser. They're going to be a winner. They're going to embed, and they started charging. Take a look. What they're doing, by the way, is sort of similar to what Microsoft is doing, right? They went to a subscription agreement. If you're on any part of the Google business products, okay, they're doing that as well. So their revenue stream is more consistent. It's more rich. So I think you can own both. I do own both. I don't think Google can be a loser at all in this. See, Gerser's point is that you, you, know, you have Google as a verb. What are you going to do? You're going to Google something, right? right? What are you going to do? You're going to bard something? No, you're going to chat GPT something. Right. That, that was part of the point that he made on the stage yesterday, and that in and of itself is so super powerful, and an advantage that Google gave up by letting Microsoft beat it to the punch when it had DeepMind in-house under its umbrella and just wasn't, first, wasn't a first mover. Okay, right. so to, to Brad's point, uh, the, the, the wonderful economics of what search ultimately is is that, and this is very rare, is that Alphabet has to worry about one thing, advertisers. They don't have to worry about users. They've right. created this model that is very distinctive in, in the history of business, right? Only worrying about one thing, that the advertisers will be there. So I, I think it's important to understand the 
influence on an investment philosophy for an individual or an entity. Brad Gerstner is influenced by technological innovation and he's brilliant at it and there's probably no one better than him at it. So he looks at AI and says, okay, generative AI, who's actually going to be the leaders in that? And I agree with him. There are others that will be the leaders. Bill Ackman, on the other hand, he looks at the value that he sees in a franchise and the value of the franchise of Alphabet, maybe it's not generative AI, but still is search, it still is cloud, and it still is YouTube. Sure, but he says also, Brent, quickly that you know the sell-off in Alphabet was a gift. Mm. And again, look at the year-to-date performance of both of those names. It's not like Microsoft has trounced Alphabet by any stretch of the imagination. Pull up Microsoft, guys, please, because you can see the 50% rise in Alphabet. And, you know, there, there's Microsoft. But since that all, you know, really became in the forefront, it's been neck and neck. I think it's too early to make a determination, but I do agree uh, with Brad that, you know, search as we know it, I think is going to change. You know, Google benefits from providing an imperfect search because that provides a perfect avenue for in, to advertisers to target their users. But I think as we look at how AI is going to influence search, if you get one answer to the question you're answering, you're asking, and you don't have to sift through multiple pages to find it, uh, that's not going to be great for an advertising platform. So they're going to have to find a new way to generate, to replace some of that revenue. I think ultimately, we're not there yet, though. We're a long way from that, yeah. I think. But I think it could be moving that direction. But in the interim, I think Google continues to have a fantastic franchise, especially with the YouTube property um, and cloud, et cetera. So I still think there's room for growth there, but I do think bigger picture that Brad may ultimately be right. All right, well, uh, it was fun talking to both of them yesterday and they gave us a really good conversation to have out of what they said about Alphabet and uh, you know, somewhat differing views. And then you can decide on uh, what, what you think is right. Uh, the headlines now with Silvana Hanau. Hi, Silvana. Hey, Scott. The Supreme Court decided to weigh in on the legality of online censorship laws. The court will examine laws in Florida and Texas that want to stop social media companies from banning users for controversial language. Republicans are backing these laws, saying they are fighting against alleged censorship of conservative rhetoric by left-leaning social media companies. Democrats say the companies need to do more to stop the spread of hateful speech. The Biden administration approved three oil and gas drilling lease sales in the Gulf of Mexico over the next five years. The Secretary of the Interior reported that this is the smallest number of oil and gas lease sales in history, down from the administration's original proposal of 11 possible sales. More than 6,500 cases of cantaloupes across 19 states are being recalled due to potential salmonella contamination. Eagle Produce announced the recall of the candy brand Whole Cantaloupe after the FDA conducted a test in a distribution center. Potentially infected cantaloupes were distributed between September 5th and September 16th. Check those cantaloupes. Scott. All right, Silvana, thank you. Uh, Silvana Hanau. Coming up, energy's next move. It's the only positive sector this month. Now we debate if that rally has room to run or if we're close to a peak. Halftime's back right after this. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. 
Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, we are back. Energy, the only positive sector, as we said, this month, up 3%. I asked BlackRock's Rick Reeder where he sees that trade heading from here. Here's what he told me. My sense is we're probably getting close to the peak in energy. Some of those stocks, though, were pretty reasonable. I actually like some of the refiners, the service companies. They're actually pretty reasonable in a portfolio. And you're trading at multiples that are not terribly high, even if you assume that energy is going to come down from where it trades at. Those valuations are pretty reasonable. See- all right, Reader giving us a good table set uh, out at Delivering Alpha as well. Joe, you want to take that? Valuations are pretty reasonable. Valuations on energy equities are extremely reasonable. And I said that I do believe this cycle uh, is going to be somewhat different compared to other commodity cycles that affect the equities where it's boom and bust. This has more sustainability. This has more durability. It's reflected in supplies. You can see uh, supplies are 4% below the five-year average. So. I think this is an environment long-term where you want to stay committed to owning energy equities. When you turn your attention to the spot price of crude oil, understand, number one, it's overbought. Number two, positioning is incredibly long when you look at the speculative community. So it's ripe for a pullback into the mid-80s, barring some form of shock. You get a geopolitical shock and momentum takes hold and you're staring at a $100 price target. But if you don't get that, I think you could fall back to the mid-80s. Remind me what you said recently, though, when I think you suggested something along the lines of you need to take more risk. You need to go further out on the risk curve in energy stocks. To, to make the money. What does that mean for people? So as the price of crude oil advances uh, as aggressively as it has in this quarter, the spot price, it's up nearly 30%. You can't believe that you're going to capture that type of return in a large multinational like an Exxon or a Chevron. You're going to have to buy some of the high beta names. One, uh, for instance, I know Josh and others, Jim Labenthal, have spoken about RIG. You might have as well, Stephen, so I apologize if I've, got, I've forgotten that. But you have to go high beta with energy if you think you're going to try and attain the type of return that you're seeing in the spot price of crude oil. Weiss, why Oxy? Why is that your one energy holding? Yeah, well, look, I came to it very late. Uh, by the way, I agree with everything Joe said except for durability, because like, I don't know what that word is. I've never heard the word before. But um, the reason I went to Oxy is that I've got one of the greatest investors in the world that owned it. So I didn't really do a lot of work on it. I don't think this is a sector where you got to do tremendous work because it goes with the commodity. I don't think it's compellingly cheap because there are always low multiples in these stocks. Um, you bought it because of your guy? Yeah. 
Yeah, there you go, baby. That's it. But but look, you know, <laughs> the secret, you know, <laughs> there it is, folks. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. But, <laughs> Pull the curtain back. <laughs> energy is just very tough. Energy is just a very tough sector. OK, you had a win there, Scott. Just take it and move <laughs> on. Act like you've been there before. Um, it's just a very tough sector. You've seen some of the smartest energy investors in the history of investing okay. just blow up. So I'm safe. I think the moment does turn. I do agree you can fall into 80s because everybody is there. Everybody loves it. That's why I typically go the other way. Jason Snipe. Yeah, so I mean, I agree with a lot of what Joe already said. I mean, it, this clearly is a supply issue. I mean, you know, OPEC, the Saudis have been incentivized to cut, and, and we've seen that play out. I think the spot price of oil, uh, to Joe's point, I mean, it, up 30% over the last few months obviously has played a role. What I will say about energy earnings, however, I do think we see some solid earnings going to this quarter. A lot of the earnings in this past quarter were predicated off of lower oil prices. I think we'll see some strength in this quarter. All right, up next, Mike Santoli. He'll be here with his midday word. Halftime's back in just a couple minutes. Dow is still down by some 33 points. NASDAQ S&P still in the green. Some breaking headlines from the Fed's John Williams, Steve Leisman. You see him. What do we know? What are we? What are we hearing? We're hearing John, the New York Fed president, in his speech says that we are at or near the peak level of the target range for the federal funds rate. It's a touch dovish. It does leave open the possibility of another quarter, but also the possibility that it actually doesn't happen. He does go on to say, before you get too happy, that they need to maintain a restrictive stance, quote, for some time. Monetary policy says it's going to take time to fully work through the economy and into inflation. That's a sign that he's on the camp that says, you know what, there are still lags to come from the hikes they've had already. Still have a ways to go, he says, to fully restore price stability. And there's that de rigueur comment from a Fed official. Inflation, he says, is still too high. Supply chain bottlenecks, though, have improved dramatically. That has helped goods inflation, which is down sharply. Shelter and core services inflation, he says, is coming down gradually, and he expects further declines in that sector of the economy. So that's good news. Numerous signs, he says, the labor market is coming into balance, but he's not happy with it yet. He says further reductions in demand are needed to bring down uh, uh, to bring the, uh, the, the labor market back into balance, which means lower GDP, less demand. He expects GDP next year to slow to one and a quarter. We're running north of two right now. Unemployment rates to rise to 4%. We're around 3.8. And he says he expects inflation to reach the 2% target in 2025. Scott, a pretty good number this morning on the PCE. The market liked it a bit, a little bit of a decline in the outlook for the funds for that extra quarter point this year, still running about 33, 34%. And it did give the bond market a bit of a breather after a pretty serious run the last several days. Scott? Yeah, yeah, good point, Steve. Uh, no big surprises, I guess, uh, from, from uh, Mr. Williams. Steve, thank you, our senior economics reporter. Let's bring in our senior markets commentator, Mike Santoli now. Um, all right, so September, get out of here, right? We, we all agree with that. Like, and don't come back. But what now? That's all that matters. I'm sorry, were you talking to me? <laughs> um, no, I mean, 
what, what matters now is, in part, I do think that the, the, the process of the bond market sort of calming down to a fair degree. You know, uh, Williams here with these headlines, it's pretty much as expected. As Steve said, slightly more dovish. And I think that's probably part of the, uh, the ingredients, too, for what the market might need to stabilize. Big question I've been asking is, has enough work been done on the downside to get those expectations for the economy and for earnings back into line with what reality is likely to be? I think as long as we have the economic numbers coming in, we'll be happy to be able to play off of those as opposed to sort of this really uh, unanchored violent move uh, in bond yields. We'll see if that can continue. Yeah, yields are going to be critical. And then earnings. And, yeah. you know, they'll start soon. The banks, I'm not sure what kind of a story they're going to tell. Maybe not the best one. Um, but we really got to wait for mega cap tech, and then that's a few weeks away. Yeah, and I also feel as if it's it's more just the market uh, usually finds some relief in its ability to look company by company and trade the winners versus the losers, as opposed to you know staying in this macro uh, sort of wind tunnel where all you have is who's moving the bonds as fast, why is oil still going up when it's not about demand, and so we'll see if we get any uh, any a break from those dynamics. All right, I'll see you in a couple hours yeah. on Closing Bell. It's Mike Santoli. Up next, we have more committee moves to tell you about. We still have final trades ahead as well. All right, Weiss, I said you uh, had a move we need to talk about. And it's FCX. You sold it. Why? I did. I Free sold it earlier in the week. The reason is, is that I'm sort of bearish on the economy. I do believe we go into recession. I don't believe we go into soft landing. And if you take a look at copper pricing, beginning of the year, you trade around four bucks. Now you're down. It just stopped going down, actually, this week. So it's moved up a little bit. But when you take a look at all the demand that's been coming out because of EVs, where it's a primary commodity that goes into EVs, and yet pricing has still come down, uh, I just said, look, in combined with my view and only want to hold the stocks I'm truly committed to, FCX wasn't one of them. It's always a trading stock. So while I believe in the long-term view on copper, that just hasn't helped with pricing this year. So that's why. It was just one on the bubble I had to go. Okay. Didn't you used to own this? We did. We look at commodity futures. Uh, copper is clearly in a sideways. There's a listless absence of a trend. The only trends you could find right now are in energy, sugar, to a certain extent, cotton. The rain. And then on the down, and the rain. And on the downside, ag prices, believe it or not. Ag prices are all down significantly year to date. Yeah. All right. Uh, we will step away for a couple of minutes. We'll come back and do uh, final trades on the other side. All right, 3 o'clock Eastern, we got a good one, and we're going to walk you right up to the end of this dismal month. We'll see what happens today. John Mowry, he's been bullish. Aaron Brown of PIMCO is going to join us. Chris Toomey, Morgan Stanley Private Wealth. Great lineup to talk about the market and what lies ahead, and I hope you'll join me then. So we'll do final trades in a second. I do want to note that we're, we're negative now. S&P's negative by a, by a touch. The Dow is negative. Don't be surprised if yields, I don't know, if yields turn positive. Joe, uh, between now and the end. Maybe yields getting off the mat a little bit today, and the stock market's been a little jittery, as you know. Yields are, have not, they've been backing up, and I see no reason why that's going to discontinue. Watching the 10-year, which is at 455. Uh, so you got, you got to watch that, uh, because that's kind of been the whole story about, you know, why this month has been 
pretty rocky in an otherwise, you know, air pocket of information. The Fed obviously didn't really surprise us with anything it did. Earnings haven't started yet. It's all about yields. Oil closely watched, too, as, as one of those drags. Weiss, final trades. Yeah, Joe's going to give another trade that I was going to give, but let's go with Well, oh, you need to call your guy first and get it? Or you good? <laughs> no, actually, we both like, we both like triple B commercial paper yielding over 6%. So, uh, yeah. So I convinced one. him to go into that. That was a good one. That was yeah. a good one. Pat myself on the back that a little a bit. One. Yeah. Jason yeah. Snipe. Nobody else will, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Costco, another solid quarter. Traffic was up 5.2%. Membership renewal up 92%. Right. Love it. We got to be real quick. Brenda. Palo Alto Network, really well positioned. Their platform offering, doing well in the If you can trade the futures market, you want to buy the two-year treasury, sell the 30 year. All right, good stuff. Good weekend, everybody. Uh, closing bell. I'll see you then. The exchanges now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit CNBC.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 